Welcome to Walshy Naps, a show about craft, creativity, and entrepreneurship. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Super excited today to be speaking with Lauren Vanell. Lauren is an independent plush toy designer who has made some amazing large-scale custom plush as well as plush for gallery exhibitions. She also has a line of toys that she's manufactured and those are both areas of softy making that I think a lot of us are curious about. So I'm really excited to have Lauren on today. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Abby. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, all right, so we're going to just jump right in and start with um, a little bit about your background. So were you always a maker? How did you learn to sew and how did you arrive at sewing plush and designing toys in particular? Uh, well, I have always been a maker. Um, I've crafted and made art projects since I was a little kid and, you know, was also pretty sort of entrepreneurial and business minded as a child. I had a lot of sidewalk sales and, you know, little creations that I'd put together that I would sell in the front steps of my house. Um, and I learned to sew, uh, actually in an elementary school class, they had a costume shop class where they, they taught us, you know, in fifth grade, which is sort of amazing to me to start to think about designing costumes and masks and theater props and things like that. Um, and then I sort of fell out of it again in, in high school and college um, when I got a sewing machine as a graduation gift at the end of uh, college. And it became um, something that I did to relax, um, a way to find creative expression at the end of the workday because I wasn't in school anymore. So I wasn't really doing a lot of artwork for classes anymore. Um, and Plush specifically only came up, I'd say, in around 2002. What was um, your, sorry to interrupt, but what was your major in college? Uh, my major was networked media, so it was basically a digital arts major. It was um, a mixture of computer science and then uh, art, music, writing, um, modern theory. Okay, that's the coolest major I've ever heard. <laughs> Um, it was one of those sort of build your own at the time, but it is now a standard major. Um, what, what college did you go to that they had this awesome major? Um, I went to Brown University. Okay. All right. Cool. That sounds amazing. All right. I'll let you keep They're going. very flexible there. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so you came to Plush in, you said, 2002? Yes. Um, in 2002, my husband, then boyfriend at the time, and I moved out to San Francisco so that he could do his MFA, and I was teaching computers and digital art um, in the city to uh, elementary school students. And um, at the time, I was looking for a way to make projects on my sewing machine that wouldn't take up any room because my sort of office, studio, workroom, whatever, was actually a closet. Um, I think everyone knows that, you know, San Francisco apartments are really, really expensive. Right. So at the time, um, we were living in a little postage stamp of a place. And um, I saw a music video for the band Deerhoof, in which they did a stop motion animation of this plush artist named Jennifer Liu, um, L-E-W, making these really 
funny, weird things out of plush that I'd never seen anybody do before. She made um, a videotape inside a cardboard sleeve, but it was actually felt. Um, she did things like, I think it was a bear in a bunny suit. Um, she had edgier things like uh, lines of cocaine with a plush razor blade next to them. And I thought this was really strange, but also really cool that she was using this medium that everyone traditionally uses for, you know, cute, cuddly stuffed animals for kids and was making this really subversive art out of it. Um, so I thought I would try my hand at it. And my first um, projects were a ham, a pack of cigarettes and a mountain. Wow. So why those three particular objects? I can see, I guess I could see sort of doing the ham kind of, you know, plush food is sort of a thing. But the cigarettes in the mountain, what was what were the what was the connection there? I don't know that there was really a connection. I think these were just shapes that I wanted to try. I sort of felt like if I could build a box out of plush, if I could make cylinders out of plush, if I can make these sort of conical shapes, um, that I could figure out how to design a lot of other patterns from there. Okay. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. Right. Those are the basic building blocks, you know, the three dimensional building blocks that make up everything are those basic shapes. And the ideas just sort of made me laugh. I mean, <sighs> Like I didn't, I wasn't aware in, in, you know, 2002 that plush food was a thing. I don't think I'd really ever seen that before. Maybe it wasn't a thing then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just, you know, it was a combination of wanting to learn these basic shapes and also, you know, just imagining in my own head what these things would look like on a couch or on a bed and they made me laugh out loud. So that's why I made them. Awesome. Okay, cool. So that, that's a really interesting um, journey. So, and so then you sort of have done these big plush projects and I was especially drawn in by this incredible, huge wearable burrito you designed and made. So tell <laughs> me more about your really big, uh, projects, like how you planned maybe that specific one or other ones and how you prototype them and then how they sort of end up working in the end. Sure. Um, I mean, the really big stuff is mostly scaled from smaller projects. So I think the first really, really large um, soft sculpture that I did was a, let's see, how tall was it? It was eight or nine feet tall, um, a plush monster for the company Neon Monster, which sadly no longer exists, but they had this great character named Mitch, and it was this sort of depressed Cyclops alien kind of guy. Um, and I had designed their, um, their plush toy line for them. Um, and they were doing the WonderCon event in San Francisco and wanted to know, you know, can we make a life-size Mitch to have for our display? Um, so I had already had the pattern for the plush toy. Um, so just enlarging that pattern by, I don't even know how many times, I guess it was by eight, six or eight times, um, was just a matter of, of scaling it up, um, where I used a grid system. Okay. Um, I was going to say, did you take it to Kinko's or something? Like how do you make something? <laughs> so I've actually always wondered that, like, how do you make it? I think I would take it to the coffee shop and just be like, 
you know, make this 20 times larger or whatever than it is now. But so you use, you know, the grid system, like when you look at those old books from the, you know, 1960s, sort of early 70s soft toy books, all the patterns are really tiny and then they tell you how to enlarge them on the grid. So essentially right. you use those directions, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm, I was going back to, you know, sort of elementary school skills. Um, I don't know that, that Kinko's or any copy shop would have really been able to handle the size of these pieces. Um, mm -hmm. Or if they had, they would have been extremely expensive to print. Right. Because you'd be printing them, you know, each pattern piece on these like three or four foot wide printers. I mean, we're talking hundreds of dollars um, in printouts. So I figured it was probably just easier. <laughs> And yeah, a little so cheaper use, like, for me to draw a grid. Did you use like poster paper? Like what paper do you even use for that? Like big newsprint taped together? Uh, I use butcher paper. Okay. Um, I always have a big roll of, you know, three foot butcher paper in the studio. I use it for all kinds of stuff. Um, and so that was really useful. And there were some pieces that were, you know, even too big for the butcher paper. So I had to, you know, just make half the piece at a time and right. then tape it together. Amazing. Um, and... Pieces of that size are very difficult to do <laughs> in a home sewing situation. Um, it was definitely not ideal. I mean, I had to move out of the studio and sort of take over the combination living room, dining room, and move everything out of there because, you know, you're running like eight feet of industrial grade fabric through your, uh, you know, home sewing machine. It's not like an industrial or commercial model you don't have that kind of warehouse space um so i'm very careful about the large projects that i choose to do because it's it's quite an undertaking in a, a home studio i imagine situation. and even just buying all the material i mean the yardage for that and also the stuffing you know that's a tremendous tremendous amount of stuff it takes to to make something that big yeah I, i've not, I don't recall exactly how much it was in materials. It was probably around $500. I bet. Um, it, the stuffing, I mean, we didn't use regular stuffing because it was, you know, first of all, just would have been way too expensive to stuff something, you know, eight feet tall with, like, fiber fill. But also it would have weighed, you know, right. a thousand pounds. So I'm guessing you use, like, foam or styrofoam. Yeah, we used packing peanuts, Um to fill it most of the way and then um, we used uh, those regular plastic you know sort of beanie baby beads just to fill out the bottoms of his legs and the bottoms of his hands so that he had some weight um, because this thing needed to be able to sit up on its own you know on a display and not go like blowing over <laughs> rolling down the aisle right um, so with the really big projects I think the biggest challenge is is usually materials um, because the patterns you can always scale up. Yeah, it sounds like materials and space are the two, are the two really big ones. So you did Mitch, and that was the first one. And then what else have you done on such? I mean, you said you're careful um, for you know reasonable re <laughs> reasons <laughs> for taking on such huge projects. But what other? Uh, tell us about a few other like really big sort of large scale plush projects you've done. So I, I have a line of toys um, called Sweet Meats, which are various cuts of meat um, made to look like, uh, made out of plush. So there's, you know, bacon and steaks and hams um, inspired by that original ham from 2002. Um, the line is, is, is sold out now, but um, at the time they were 
fairly popular in San Francisco, and there were a couple of um, restaurants, uh, design houses that wanted custom meat pillows. So I did a lot of large scale meat stuff too, um, you know, like bean bag chair size or um, just really large, like oversized sofa cushion type stuff um, to put on like banquettes in, in um, restaurants. So I did a couple of those. And then you mentioned the, the large burrito projects um, that I did for the Bold Italic, which is a magazine based in San Francisco. Um, they were launching their new online shop and they wanted to see if I could make them a custom burrito body pillow to include in the sort of launch of this store. Um, so I, I did do that. Um, you know, I made a 18 inch prototype of it first, brought it into them so that they could look at all the, you know, individual toppings and sort of sign off on my selections and the colors and the material choices. Um, and then made them the, the larger version. Um, and then soon after that, <clears throat> excuse me, they were very excited to have a mascot that was Mr. Burrito or Ms. Burrito, I guess it's a, it's a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so they asked, could I, you know, make this thing even larger and turn it into a wearable costume instead? Um, and I don't do a ton of costume work, um, but I had already done the large burrito, so it wasn't too much of a switch to turn it into a costume. It just ended up instead of being stuffed, it had an open bottom and was wrapped around, um, a foam shell. So basically I, I took a, you know, a really large piece of, um, I guess it's usually chair cushion foam, uh-huh. um, but it's sold in those, you know, large sheets and yeah. it's about an inch and a half thick. Um, it sews together really well if you're using, you know, like upholstery thread and needles. Um, so you can sew it together by hand, um, in a nice big cylinder, you know, cut out armholes, um, and then basically slid the whole outside of the burrito over it, also with armholes um, and a face hole with some mesh behind it, like a sleeve over the top of that foam structure. Um, I'm getting all kinds of ideas for costumes now. This is so cool. (laughs) Oh my God, my brain is spinning. That is a really great way to structure something. I'm like thinking to myself when I saw it at first, like, is there interfacing in here or cardboard? But foam is perfect because it's so lightweight and it's flexible, but it's stiff enough. That is awesome. Yeah, luckily it, it sews really well. That's good to hear. Yeah. So, wow. Okay, that is really cool. Um, all right. So so you've also done, I guess, with, the, with your Sweet Meats line or sort of, you know, playing off of that this great gallery uh, installation with this butcher case um, or deli case, I guess, in Philadelphia. So I'd love to hear more about uh, the origin of that project and how you develop the concept. Because for me, the sort of conceptual idea behind such a, like a, a big installation piece is the challenge. So I'd love to hear about how you came up with that and developed it. Um, So that was a piece that I did for the Society for Contemporary Craft, um, which is actually in Pittsburgh. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, It's no problem. (laughs) Um, And they contacted me because that particular museum has an installation space that is a sort of deli cafe 
um, space. Um, I think it was at one time a working um, a working deli or a working cafe, um, and these days they use it for for food based installations um, almost exclusively. And um, they had seen the sweet meats, and so they had contacted me for um, their show DIY, um, which I think was either curated by or at least um, he wrote the the show booklet for it. Garth Johnson, um, if you're familiar with with his work, he's pretty pretty big in the sort of craft as art world. Um, he does a lot of promotion of craft in gallery settings and fine art settings. Um, he also put together that book, A Thousand Ideas for Creative Reuse. Oh, wow. Actually, um, I'm not familiar with his work, but I'm going to go look it up. Yeah, he's, he's, um, he's a pretty interesting guy, and he has a lot of really great stuff to say um, about craft as fine art. Um, so they had asked if I could put together a a plush deli, a plush butcher shop installation in this space that they already had. Um, so it wasn't um, too outside of my wheelhouse because I already had this line that I designed um, for sweetmeats. So I, I repeated some of those designs and made a couple of new ones um, for the installation and then went to uh, one of our local butcher shops <clears throat> in San Francisco called Avadanos, um, which is run by three women. Um, it's one of the coolest places in the city and um, certainly my favorite butcher shop there. And they let me um, draw the inside of their meat locker, basically, <laughs> so that I could, again, using a grid system, make a really large, um, you know, eight-foot-tall version of this so that there was a sort of life-sized um, meat locker drawing behind the deli case so that it looked like you were actually inside um, the butcher shop. And then the museum, museum hung two panels of this drawing um, inside their windows so that the light was coming through from the back. Um, and it was, it was a very cool setup. Um, and they, they had it up for about a year. Um, and then I think they were looking to have the show travel, but it didn't quite work out. So um, the installation moved to Rare Device, which is a gallery and um, shop in San Francisco in February of this year. And then we just took that down in March. That's great. It had such a long life. That's fantastic. Um, and did you get to go uh, out east and see it yourself? I unfortunately didn't. Um, during the time that it was up, I you know, just did not have the opportunity to get out to Pittsburgh, um, you know, and museums don't generally, no. when they do a big group show, have the budget to fly all the artists out. Right. Um, but they did take excellent pictures for me. That's so great. from a lot of different angles and a lot of different lights. Were so you, I was able to see it. Were you the only plush artist in the show or was it, uh, were there others? Uh, no, I was the only plush artist in that show, but I mean, they've done lots of other shows that, Incredible. that feature fiber artists. Uh-huh. That's great. So kind of um, building on that, you know, what do you feel like the reaction is generally when um, when there's plush in a gallery? I guess, do you feel like people get it and think, you know, plush does belong in a gallery setting? Or do you think that's still sort of outside of 
the comfort zone of most gallery goers. What, what do you think about that? I think in general, most gallery visitors are um, pretty delighted to see plush in a gallery just because it's it's something different. Um, it's something that's, you know, sort of surprising and whimsical um, very often. I think that um, soft sculpture has come a really long way, in the, even in the last just, you know, 10 or 15 years. Um, there are a lot of artists doing some really amazing stuff. It's really branched out um, from, you know, the sort of commercial stuffed animal world. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I don't know that galleries are as comfortable with having it because as happy as people are to see it in a gallery, I still think there's a big disconnect between what they see as um, sort of gallery pricing and plush pricing. Mm. So I think it's a lot harder for galleries to sell plush work for the same that you would sell, you know, a sculpture made out of a different material. Um, right. You know, if it were a plaster sculpture or a painting on the wall, um, people sort of have this high art idea about it. And so the value that they ascribe to that is different than what they ascribe to something that was made out of fabric. Um, so, you know, it, I think that the gallery owners are a little less likely or a little more hesitant to feature plush just because it's harder to sell it at the appropriate prices and the prices that people are generally willing to pay for soft sculpture um, are a lot lower than what you could get if you were exhibiting other work. Right. I think you're completely right. And um, I don't know what it would take to change that, but I think, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons behind it that we don't all have to go into now, but having to <laughs> yeah, do Yeah, that's with, another whole yeah, conversation. Right, exactly. Um, but it is sort of tied in with feminism in a way, so it kind of gets, gets under my skin, but there you are. Um, Me too. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> okay, so so tell us about, um, about your line of toys that you've had uh, manufactured and what your goal was in taking on that as a project and any wisdom you could share with aspiring plush designers um, who hope to have some of their designs manufactured? Oh boy. Yeah. That's also sort of a big question. Um, well, I started the sweet meats line um, sort of by accident. It was a convergence of factors. Um, I was still teaching at the time, although at a different school, a middle school uh, in the East Bay. And um, the Sweet Meats line had sort of taken off that year. I think it was 2006 or 2007. Um, it had gotten some, some blog coverage, and it was, especially around the holidays, I ended up getting a lot of orders. I mean, this was just a little, you know, every time someone would order a meat, I would cut out the pieces, sew it up, ship it to them. It was all made to order kind of stuff. Um, the profit margin was slim to none. Um, and it was just sort of a, a way that I could maintain my hobby while I was working and, and, you know, still sort of pay for it. Um, but I hadn't thought of it as a real business until it gained a little bit of momentum. And then it started getting really hard to fulfill the orders and still work full time. Um, 
that same, around the same time, um, they were planning to do big construction at the school where I was working. There was going to be no computer lab for the whole next year. Um, you know, the upper management at the school had quit as well. So I thought, you know, if ever there were a time to strike out on my own and give this whole small business thing a shot, like now's the time. Um, so, you know, luckily I had the support of my husband who at that point was no longer in grad school. He was working. Um, so I was able to, you know, sort of rely on him and my savings for the next year as I got my business up and running. Um, because with any new business, you know, chances are minuscule that it will be profitable in the first year and still small that it will be profitable in the second year. Um, so you really have to allow yourself some time to grow that business. Um, if you're thinking about starting one, because you know, it's not going to pay your rent those first couple of years. Um, and I don't think a lot of people know that uh, even a su successful business will probably not, you know, pay any of your bills in the beginning. Um, so I decided that I was going to have these manufactured because I just literally could not make them fast enough myself. I mean, it, it took me at the time, you know, anywhere between one and three hours to make each of these pieces. Of course. Um, you know, and if they're selling between like 20 and $50 and then you subtract. Forget it. Absolutely. I've done all the yeah. math. Forget <laughs> it. <laughs> if you want to do it as a hobby, go for it. But you can't build a sustainable business, at least in my opinion. it's It doesn't work. Handmade plush as a sustainable business is extremely, extremely rare. Um, if you're doing, you know, super simple pieces where the front and the back are identical and it's just a sort of like ugly doll, you know, flat but puffy shape. Um, and you're charging appropriately for it. I suppose it's possible, but it's very, very difficult. Um, so I decided to get them manufactured and I, I did a lot of research on manufacturers and, and tried to find a way that I could select one that was responsible. It was really important to me that I was not using, you know, sweatshop labor, that I was not damaging the environment in doing this. And um, I eventually got a referral through um, a contact I had at a novelty company in, in LA. He had once approached me at a craft fair in, at the Oakland Museum to see if I would be interested in licensing my designs to his company to produce. And then they ultimately decided that they, you know, that wasn't a project that they wanted to pursue, but because he already worked in the toy industry, but did not himself have any plush toy lines, he knew manufacturers and was happy to refer them to me. Um, in general, it's not cool to ask someone in the same field as you um, for their manufacturing sources, because, you know, you're, you're basically asking them like, Hey, as my like future competitor, can you help me become more successful in your field of very limited options? Um, so luckily, you know, this guy had the information, but was not actually a, a competitor of mine. Right. Um, and he pointed me to a factory um, in Shenzhen in Southern China, which is where a lot of textile factories are located. Um, and they no longer exist, unfortunately. But um, so I'm, you know, working with new manufacturers now. 
Uh, so did you have um, the meat manufactured first or did you, you know, design something new? No, it was the meat that I had manufactured. Okay. Um, so I started with six designs. I had the ham, the pork chop, and the steak in two different sizes. There was individual size, which is sort of, you know, toy size. And then I had family size, which was um, pillow sized. And uh, I sent them all six of the designs. Um, I got some of their certifications to make sure that they were cool. Like there's, um, you can get ISO certifications, like the, the ISO 9001 certification um, is basically a manufacturing uh, excellence uh, certification. They look at product quality, they look at um, factory conditions, they look at materials, they look at the processes that the factory uses. Um, ISO 9003 is an, uh, an environmental um, certification that shows that they're, you know, if not totally sustainable, at least, you know, an environmentally friendly manufacturing um, facility. So these are certifications that you're looking at um, to assess a particular factory and determine whether or not you want to contract with them. Exactly. Um, I mean, I didn't really have the budget to be making visits to China right. <laughs> at the time to tour the factory myself. Um, you know, this, this friend of mine in LA had shown me some photos of the inside of the factory um, because it was one that he used a lot. So I, I had a, you know, sort of trusted personal reference for this particular factory. But if you can't get that, there are certifications that you, international certifications that you can get um, where a third party has signed off that, you know, this or that factory has met these environmental standards, has met these product quality standards. Um, the ICTI, the International Consortium for the Toy Industry, has a CARE certification, C-A-R-E, um, that basically um, make sure that everybody working in the factory is working in safe conditions. There's no underage labor. Everybody is making a fair wage. Um, so that's a good one. And they have, you know, the ICTI has a whole care database where you can just search through the factories who have already been certified that way. Um, so there are definitely more tools now that you can use to assess whether a factory is um, responsible. Right. Because once you once you have a toy company, um, especially if you sell things online, you will start getting emails from manufacturers, mostly in Asia, on a very regular basis. You know what? I don't even have a company like that, and I get those emails. So see, there yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so okay, so now you know you you have I'm sure you know thousands of units of meat in various sizes in um, and you need to work with a distributor, am I correct? Well, at first I, I did not have a distributor. I was not working with anyone other than myself. Um, I had a full container load of meats. Um, I think I had like eight, 1,800 pieces total. Um, the whole first shipment was around $10,000. It was you know pretty much all of my savings. It was this huge bet. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I had tried to get some advice from, um, our local chapter of SCORE, which is the service core of retired executives. Um, and they have great resources and they have free mentoring. Um, 
but the closest mentor that they could find to what I was doing was um, this gentleman who had worked in the garment district in New York for a really long time. Um, so he didn't actually have any experience in the toy industry. Um, and so his advice to me was to start doing trade shows because what you need to do is sign up these big, you know, corporate accounts that will keep ordering from you. Um, so I did a, I, the first one I did was the California gift show, um, in Los Angeles because it was close to home and it was, you know, relatively inexpensive. I think it cost me maybe around $2,500 altogether to do that show with, you know, the booth fees and the travel and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but if you were to do, for example, like the New York International Gift Fair, that can be a lot closer to $10,000. Or like um, Toy Fair, right? Or, toy or, fair. Toy fair. or Toy Fair. Or Toy Fest, right? There's a bunch of these. There's a ton of them. Yep. Um, and, I mean, we could list them all out. And, you know, there's sort of various costs of participation. Sure. Um, but I did this, this gift fair um, you know, designed my booth and built it myself and, you know, drove it down there in my car and set everything up. And, um, in, you know, the four days that I was at the show, I didn't get a single order. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> I'm like stressed out for you right now. So yeah. Oh my God. I had a total nervous breakdown in the hotel. I mean, I was, oh my God. you know, sobbing and, and, um, calling my husband and saying like, what did I do? Like I had, I blew my entire life savings on like an 18 wheeler full of plush meat. Like when I say it out loud, this is insane. Why did you let me do this? Okay. So tell <laughs> us how you dug yourself out of this hole. Um, well, I think it took a good week for me to just sort of recover <laughs> uh -huh. from that to begin with. Um, the meats had not yet arrived. Um, you know, I had my samples to, at the show to get orders, but they were, I think still on the boat at the time, um, and had not come through customs yet. So I needed to find, you know, a place to store them first of all, because that amount of product was not going to fit in my house. Um, and then how to get rid of them right? because storage is really expensive. Um, so after, you know, a week of sort of being really depressed and like not getting out of my pajamas and, and trying not to think about like what I was going to do with my life and how I had blown all of my money. Um, I decided like, at least I can, the only thing I can start with right now is, you know, my own town, my own neighborhoods, I'll start small. <laughs> and I just packed up my samples in a tote bag and just started you know, walking or taking the bus to stores that I thought might be interested in carrying these things. Um, and I, you know, I just did the like door to door salesman thing Wow. Um, for a few weeks and most stores sort of raised an eyebrow at me and said, thank you very much, but no thanks. But there were a couple of shops in San Francisco that thought that this was, you know, the funniest, coolest thing they'd ever seen. And they said, yes, of course, we'll try, you know, a few of these. Um, <clears throat> Neon Monster was one of those early advocates. They even hung them up in the window because they thought they were so entertaining. Yay! <laughs> there were a couple of home goods stores that took a chance on them. Um, there were, um, you know, a few other sort of indie toy comic gift shops that carried them. The regular toy stores didn't really know what to do with them. Right. 
um, because they don't have, you know, cute faces or anything. They're really more soft sculpture than stuffed animals. Um, so the toy stores did not take them at all. The pet stores, um, a few of the higher end ones were pretty interested. And so, you know, I sold maybe a few dozen those first few months, uh, just by going door to door and getting these orders. Um, I did the same thing to a small extent in New York when I visited my folks in Brooklyn, you know, took them around to a couple of stores that I thought would be interested <clears throat> and listed the stores on the website. And then, you know, customers ask people in their neighborhoods, like, do you carry these? Um, you can get, you know, a little bit of local press or at least blog recognition when they've been in a few stores. So just getting that first little push on my own uh -huh. um, really helped get the ball rolling a bit faster. Um, and then I found maybe a year later um, a distributor in, in Los Angeles um, who did really the indie toy market. Um, wow. And I, I don't remember... Oh, yes, I do remember how I found him. <laughs> um, his partner is a plush food collector. She has a um, refrigerator, not plugged in, but a full-size fridge that is packed with plush food and everything in its appropriate place. Oh, my so, God. This woman is amazing. Oh, I'd love to see it. It must be pictures. Um Probably. I'm not sure if they're online or not, but um, awesome. he did send me some eventually. Her name is Sarah Jo Marks, and so she's also in the, the toy industry. She has um, a, a toy video blog and um, maybe does some writing as well. Um, but anyway, he had ordered, I think, like one of, one of each of my meets for her for her birthday or some other occasion. Um, and I think I noticed in his order form that his email address said that he was, you know, from dketoys.com. And so I'm thinking to myself, oh, this person with a, a toy email address just ordered one of everything. Like, who is this guy? So I looked him up and found out that he did, you know, distribution for indie toys. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be nice? Um, so I, I, contacted him and, and asked, you know, if he might be interested in, in distributing mine. And, um, and luckily he was, um, so, you know, he, he warehoused all the meats and, and shipped them out to, um, all the stores. And, um, he sends out a daily email to his, um, sort of wholesaler list with new products. And so, you know, once or twice a year, your products would be in there and they would see it. So you could get exposure to new stores that way. Um, and so for the, you know, the next few years I worked with him and I, I, um, through my on my, my own online retail sales, um, my own retail connections and through my distributor, we sold out of all of those meats in that big container. See, I uh, knew it was a happy reordered, ending. I knew it was a happy ending. Reordered a couple of times. Yeah. Cause you <laughs> mentioned earlier that. They were sold out. So I'm like, I know there's a happy ending to the story. <laughs> I just need to get there because I'm feeling very stressed. Okay, good. <laughs> so um, so I think sort of lesson learned on the uh, on this sort of post-manufacturing piece is um, 
find yourself a distributor um, because, wow, that's a good, but it's got to be the right one, right? I mean, you can't, it's got to be the one that understands the market for your particular piece. Absolutely. And, and just to be clear, I mean, distributors are not really sales reps. You know, there's nobody calling up new stores on your behalf. Um, you know, he has this, this daily newsletter that goes out to his clients, but it's really just a catalog. Um, it's, it's just a list of the new products that he's got in stock just so they're aware of, you know, what he's carrying. Um, distributors will not go out and sell for you. So that's still your job to do your own marketing, to do your own selling, to find new connections. Um, and it can certainly help new stores to find you because you're in a catalog uh, but nobody's pushing your product. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, as far as getting the stuff out of your own, you know, garage, your own attic, um, having someone who will ship those bigger orders for you, that's great. Um, and being part of a catalog is really great. But, um, you know, it's still, it's still your job as the business owner, unless you hire, you know, a sales rep. Right. Um, to make sure that those things are actually getting out the door. Right. And also when you work with a distributor, they're going to take a cut. So you have to take that, you know, keep that in mind as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, pretty standard would be 20% of your wholesale. Um, so you definitely have to factor that in to the math when you calculate costs, you know, um, based on your retail price, you know, half of that is your wholesale price. Take 20% off the top of that. Um, what does it cost to get them manufactured? What does it cost to store them? What does it cost to ship them, get them through customs if you're having them made internationally? Um, all of that stuff. What's amazing to me is that at the beginning of our conversation, we had just talked about how making those exact same plush meats yourself is not profitable. And there's almost no way, unless they're extremely simple, which they're not, to make it profitable. But given all those other costs and all the cuts that all of those other, you know, middlemen are taking, it's still, I'm guessing, at least somewhat profitable to have it manufactured and distributed. Um, I mean, it can be. It really depends. It has gotten much less so over the years, um, especially because a lot of the manufacturing for plush toys takes place um, in China or in Eastern Asia. Um, you know, they, they've had that one child rule for a really long time over there. Um, so the population is not increasing the way that it used to. And, um, with more jobs and fewer people to fill them, it's, you know, the unskilled factory jobs that are, um, being left vacant first, right? right? Because if there's, you know, better jobs out there, <laughs> people are going to take them, um, I don't think anybody, you know, grows up wanting to work in a factory. So like I mentioned, that factory that I used for the sweetmeats originally, right. um, you know, they don't, they don't do it anymore. Um, and the factories that are left, especially for smaller orders, have gotten way more expensive. I think it's, it probably costs twice what it did in, you know, 2007, 2008. Interesting. Um, just over the last five years to manufacture plush. And there are a couple of domestic um, factories that are that are now comparable in price to getting things made overseas when you consider that you don't have to pay for the, you know, ocean freight and customs and whatnot. So the cost is evening out some. Interesting. 
um, between you know domestic and international manufacturing, but it's, I mean, for me, it's really a question of quality and responsibility. I was going to so, say, so I mean, right, with American manufacturers, and also you, you're you're um, eliminating the language barrier, which can also be helpful. Well, most of the factories that you know I've spoken with or worked with. Um, have international clients, um, you know, a lot of, they're all trying to score the big American companies, right? They're all trying to land, you know, Disney, right. um, Hasbro, Mattel, et cetera. Um, so they all have, you know, English speaking, um, project managers on staff. Right. Um, right. I'd say that the cultural barrier, honestly, is a bigger issue than the language barrier. Um, because the way that, you know, the two countries interact and the way that businesses operate in the two countries are not necessarily the same. Um, you know, if a factory in China doesn't feel like doing something, they'll tell you very politely that it's impossible, even if you know that it isn't. Uh-huh. Um, and they will be super nice about it, but you know, they will just tell you like, sorry, this is not something that can be done. Um, you know, can we do it this other way? Uh, and it's, it's sort of up to you to also very politely, <laughs> right. but firmly, you know, indicate, like, I'm afraid that that won't work for me, um, you know, and to offer your own suggestions and to try and sort of bridge that divide. Um, because it's very easy to fall into a trap where you end up having to cut corners or sacrifice things. Um, and then you're stuck, <clears throat> then you're stuck with a truckload of, of merchandise that you don't even like. Exactly. So that's and good. If you don't love it, you can't sell it. Right. And that's a big mistake. So, yeah. Right. So, tread carefully. Um, all right. This has been so interesting. Um, <laughs> I thank you for sharing um, sort of the details and the ins and outs of, of the process. I, th- I hope that it's helpful to people. It was certainly really fascinating to me. And um, so I know right now you are back to working uh, full time uh, doing something other than designing toys. Um, so any future plans that you want to share with us? Um, well, I have a new toy line out, um, the Deep Creeps, which are um, glow-in-the-dark creatures from the very bottom of the ocean. Um, Leonardo the Dumbo octopus was released um at the end of last year. So he's available in stores now and then um, late summer, early fall. Leonardo will be joined by Mariana, the anglerfish, and her companion Chummy, the lanternfish, um, so named because he is both friend and food. Um, nice. <laughs> and, um, you know, because that original factory sort of fell through, um, this project has also been a really long time in coming. Um, because Leonardo was made by that same that original sweetmeats factory, but then finding a new manufacturer for the rest of the line when the first piece has already been completed um, was sort of an undertaking. So um, I'm really glad to finally get those going. Um, still doing some product development uh, for clients here and there. Like you said, I'm working full-time um, I'm working as a design manager for um, a subsidiary of Warner Brothers right now. Um, so I don't really have the time to do a lot of freelance stuff. Right. Uh, 
And so I haven't taken on new plush clients um, in a very long time. Um, that plush burrito was was the, the last thing that I did. <laughs> well, you ended on a high note, at least for now. I mean, listen, it's a giant plush burrito. It's a giant wearable plush burrito, so you can't really go wrong. And the burrito body pillow went to um, a military wife whose husband bought it for her because she super loves burritos, but you know is lonely when he's deployed. Um, so I thought that was a really sweet story. I was oh so thrilled to hear that that's where the, the burrito body pillow went. That is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> she can snuggle her burrito when she's lonely. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> well, Lauren, thank you so much. This was totally interesting. And I really appreciate the time you took to talk to me today and to share all of your um, plush making experiences with us. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Check out my blog, whilesheknaps.typepad.com, for more about running a creative business. See you next time.